So Galatians 6, 11 through 18, since we're closing out Galatians, I'm just going to do a quick review. And some of you are going to say, well, I didn't need to stay for the whole, I didn't need to come to this whole thing. I could have just come to the last one. I had to get in the whole package. But if that's what you think. Uh, so the, the story of Galatians starts in Acts 13 and 14 when Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey swing through the cities of Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, all cities in modern-day Turkey in a region that back then was called Galatia. This was about 45 AD, and if you know those stories, it was a rough time. Paul in one city was stoned and presumed dead. Uh, he was chased out of basically all of those cities by uh, fellow Jews who did not agree with his preaching of the gospel. But the, the missionary team had enough courage and faith that uh, after they had gone through the whole region, they turned around and came back through all those cities again just to establish churches and make sure everything was okay. Uh, so that's about 45 AD. Sometime after that, a group of men from the Jerusalem church don't seem to have been authorized by the church itself, by James, the leader of the church. They just kind of took it upon themselves to come down to these churches in Galatia and tell them four things. And we're getting this from context. We don't have a record of this. But what they seem to have said is, number one, Paul's not a real apostle. He couldn't be because he never walked with Jesus. Number two, the message he preached is false because he tells you to reject the law of Moses that has sustained God's people for hundreds and hundreds of years. Number three, if you follow his teaching, it will produce sin in your life because it'll, it's telling you you don't need to follow the law. Whereas if you follow the law, it'll restrain sin and, and you'll be pleasing to God. And number four, therefore, since you believed a false gospel, you're not really saved and you need to embrace the law of Moses to be saved, starting with all your men need to, get, need to be circumcised. So... In 49 AD, so four years after that first missionary journey, they held the Jerusalem Council. This is in Acts 15. The church gathered and decided and discussed what to do about the problem of Gentile Christians. Gentiles coming into the church, do they need to become Jews? Or are they, is it enough to just trust in Jesus? And in the end, they ruled in favor of Paul and Barnabas and against the people who had stirred up the trouble in Galatia. And so in the early 50s, Paul writes this letter. Most scholars believe it was the earliest letter in the New Testament to be written. So here's an outline of what the book says. The first two chapters are Paul's defense of his apostleship. He gives his testimony, and that's, that happens in Scripture three times. But here he, he goes into greater detail in order to say, look, I didn't steal the, the gospel from the apostles and put my own twist on it, because that's what his opponents were saying. In fact, I didn't even hear the gospel from the apostles. I barely even met with them. I got the gospel from Jesus himself. Chapters 3 and 4 are a theological argument about faith against the law. The law is good, it came from God, but it can't save you, whereas faith in Jesus Christ does save you. Actually, he says, if the law was capable of saving us, then the death of Jesus was for nothing. You think about that, that's a pretty solid argument right there. Why would Jesus die for our sins if all we have to do is follow the law to be saved? But since he did die for our sins, we know that our salvation comes from trusting in him. And he makes this point, even Old Testament heroes like Abraham were saved by faith, not by obedience to the law. Because if it was obedience to the law, they'd all be lost. 
Then chapters 5 and 6, the last two chapters, are about how freedom from the law produces a righteous life. And that's against what the opponents of Christianity were saying. They said if you follow this, this law of grace, this, this rule of, of grace through faith, then you can just do whatever you want to and assume God's going to forgive you. Well, that's going to produce all kinds of sin. Paul says, to the contrary, if you accept Christ and He comes into your life, you're going to live a more righteous life, not a less righteous life. He says the growth is a process not of learning to obey rules, but of learning to walk by the Spirit. It's a that's so it really is true. It's a relationship, not just a religion. So the Spirit is pulling you in the opposite direction from your flesh. There is a war going on in your life as a Christian where your flesh wants to do one thing and the Spirit is saying the other. And which one you feed more, which one you obey more, is the one that wins the fight. Now the law, on the other hand, can't restrain the flesh. Can't do anything to stop the flesh. Uh, but the Spirit has power to make you new. So every day you follow the Spirit, you're getting further and further away from the flesh. You're learning more and more to say no to the flesh and more and more to say yes to what's righteous. The Spirit produces fruit instead of the works of the flesh, which are dead. And the church is the laboratory where we learn how to walk by the Spirit. As we follow in the example and the footsteps of other Christians, as they encourage us, as they hold us accountable, that's what the church does. Now, that's the whole book in a nutshell. Let me say this, and I said this at the start. This is a long introduction, so sorry, but I, I need to sum all this up so we're all on the same page. Lots of Christians, nobody would say this out loud, but lots of Christians look at the book of Galatians and say, I just don't get it. And then when you explain it to them, oh, it's about grace versus, uh, versus law. It's about the flesh versus the spirit. They'd say, okay, well, that was probably real important 2,000 years ago, but that's not really something we struggle with today. And if you think that, you are wrong. See, bad religion, and that's what Galatians is really about. It's about the difference between Christianity faith in Jesus Christ, and a perversion of it that is always going to be present. It is, it is the, the monster in the horror movie that you think is dead and it pops back up, right? That's, that's what you always have to watch out for. And no matter what church you're a part of, how healthy the church seems, and it could happen to this church. And I'm sure in the 130 years uh, of First Baptist Conroe, it has happened in this church's history. I don't know when. But it has. It happens in every church where you start to drift into this bad religion rather than the true gospel. What do I mean by bad religion? Five things. This is me. This is not Galatians. Bad religion emphasizes what we do. The gospel emphasizes what Jesus has done. So if it's all about you have to do this, you have to do that, you must complete these rituals, you must follow these rules, you must renounce these sins, you must... That's not the gospel. The gospel is about what Christ has already accomplished for you on the cross. Number two, bad religion teaches us the way to a righteous life is a list of rules. That's how you become a good person, is we're going to give you a list of rules, most of which, if you pay attention, they're not even in the scriptures. Because bad religion loves to make up new rules. It's not enough. God's rules aren't enough because they're not specific enough and they don't cover every little, uh, every little uh, minute situation you might encounter. So we need to come up with a list of rules. That's how you become righteous. The gospel says the way is a relationship with God who sends His Holy Spirit to teach you how to walk and gives you the power to walk in righteousness. 
Number three, bad religion, this is an important one, y'all listen to this. Bad religion measures us by our zeal to identify and destroy our enemies. Whereas the gospel measures us by our zeal to love and transform our enemies. You can tell a lot about a church or about a Christian by their attitude towards outsiders. If outsiders are the enemy, if there's someone to be conquered, if they're always walking around uh, you know, making little categories and saying, okay, and drawing lines and saying, okay, us here in this box, we are the true church. We're the true people. Everybody out there, they're, they're, just, they're all apostate. They're all pagans. They're all enemies. That's not the gospel. The gospel is about transforming those who are lost. It's about loving those on the outside, even if they hate you in return. There's nothing more Jesus than that. Number four, bad religion divides churches through a laser focus on something other than Jesus. But the gospel unites people around a laser focus on Christ's saving grace. So what do I mean? Bad religion is always going to pick some little side issue to get all worked up about. And sometimes it's going to be something biblical. It's going to be about end times interpretation, for instance, which we should preach the return of Jesus because that's our hope. But if, if you've, in, you've discovered, quote-unquote, how you, how you believe it's going to happen, and your way is the only way, and anybody who doesn't believe in your particular interpretation of the, the prophetic text in the, in, the, in the Bible is wrong and is apostate and is a pagan, that's what I'm talking about. Or you can pick your other uh, you know, side biblical issue. Sometimes it's not even in the Scriptures. Sometimes it's cultural things like... Uh, drinking and dancing, right? That's what we're famous for as Baptists. We got, we got all worked up about that for a couple hundred years. Now, do those things matter? Yeah. Yeah, there needs to be godly teaching on the subject of alcohol, for instance. But it's not, if you ever take a drink of that demon rum, you're going to hell. That's not scriptural. And yet, that's what we were known for, for, for hundreds of years. Um, but the gospel, and that's why, again, Listen, I love being Baptist. I hope I'm a Baptist until I get to heaven when it won't matter. But we ought to be embarrassed that every little town in Texas has five Baptist churches. It's not because they've run out of room. It's because they can't get along. Church of Christ does the same thing, by the way. Uh, you know, so that, this is what I'm talking about. Whereas the gospel unites people because it's focused on the saving grace of Christ. That doesn't mean that the gospel never gets upset. The gospel doesn't take a stand, because it does. Sometimes people leave in a gospel-teaching church. Sometimes people get upset. But it better be over the gospel. It shouldn't be over side issues. All right, number five. And then we'll get into the actual text. You won't listen to me anymore. Uh, number five, bad religion produces things like pride, self-righteousness, anger, fear, and guilt. The gospel produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You will know them by their fruit, okay? The, the, the problem we have, one of the problems we have is, yes, should we judge a church? Should we judge a pastor? Should we judge a, a, a leader of our life group by, are they sticking to the word of God? Absolutely. If a, a church doesn't teach the Bible, if a life group leader doesn't teach the Bible, if a preacher doesn't preach the Bible, then they need to be confronted, and if they won't repent, then you need to leave them. But we stop there, a lot of us. Okay, he preaches the word, that's good enough for me. When he's the meanest son of a gun you've ever seen. And that's not the gospel. 
That's not the fruit of the Spirit. When he's prideful, when he refuses to, to let anybody confront him about any little sin he's committed, when he refuses to repent, when he's self-righteous and lords his power over others, when there's anger, when there's fear, the gospel doesn't produce fear and guilt and anger. You understand that. There are times to be righteously indignant, but that's pretty rare. But when you come to a place and you see those fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and so, so on and so forth, then you know you're in a place where the gospel is reigning. So the, I think the book of Galatians is extremely relevant because it, it helps us keep a check on our own hearts and on our own churches and make sure we're not sliding into something that looks like Christianity because it's biblical, but it's not because it's producing fruit that isn't. Does that make sense? So, I didn't give you a chance to respond. Uh, <laughs> chapter 6, we're going to pick up with verse 11. So this is the end of the book, and I love how that, this first verse, verse 11, says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. I love, I love the letters of Paul, but I love the parts where, he gets very per, where you see kind of the personal side of Paul, and this is one of them. Paul dictated probably all of his letters, and usually he names the person who's writing it for him. In Galatians, he doesn't. Uh, that wasn't unusual, by the way. Because it was, it was a culture, uh, you know, you couldn't, for instance, sit down at a computer and just type out your message. And so you wanted to hire somebody who was not only fluent in Greek, because that was the language of the wider world, but somebody who had good handwriting. It's as simple as that. You're not going to send out a letter if it looks like your doctor wrote a prescription on it, right? You know, then it's not doing anybody any good. So Paul dictated his letters, but usually, often, he would write the closing lines himself in his own hand. And the reason for that was he wanted to make sure people could tell, oh yeah, that's definitely Paul's handwriting, this letter is definitely from him. Because believe it or not, there were false letters going around even then. Now, why does he say, see with what large letters I am writing? This is one of those things that doesn't matter, ultimately, but Bible scholars and, and people like some of us like to nerd out on this, right? So what, what's, what does that mean? Does that mean that Paul was losing his eyesight? There's a, there's a lot of folks who believe that Paul was slowly losing his eyesight, that that was his thorn in the flesh. That's why he says in Galatians 4.15, I know when I was back there, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Uh, others speculate that maybe in some of his persecutions, his, his hand was injured. Maybe he wasn't, you know, his, his letters were large for that reason. Others say, well, it's because he was a blue-collar guy and not a scribe, and so his, his, he had to write big. We don't know. It's just, it's trivia, put it that way. So let's move on to verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Now, one of the attacks that people on the side of legalism will often level at people who are true to the gospel is, well, huh, you just want to be liked. That's, that's your problem. You just want everybody to like you. And that's why, that's why you're, you're preaching all this grace and all this mercy and all this, all this kindness business. You know, I'm about the truth and I don't care that people hate me. In fact, that, that's proof that I'm on, I'm on the right side. How Bob's heard this, right? Um, but, but when you get down to it, 
they are they are just as I mean okay let's let's face it we all many of us do struggle with the idol of approval we all have to check ourselves the people who make those attacks they're trying to prove themselves to others as well they've got their fellow legalists that they have to impress I'll tell you what I mean so at this time when you know you got to imagine the first several years of Christianity it was an all Jewish religion it was, it was, in fact, seen as the completion of Judaism. We have met the true Messiah. And I'm sure if you were a, a, one of the apostles or any of those early Jewish Christians, your, your dream was, eventually, my fellow Jews are going to accept Jesus, and, and he's finally going to be the Messiah of our people, and then he's going to come back, and, and everything's going to be great. But then something unexpected happened. All these Gentiles start coming to faith. You didn't see that coming. God saw it coming. That was his plan all along. But if you're a Jewish Christian, you didn't see that coming. And some of them saw that and said, well, praise the Lord. God does things that we don't expect. But others said, this is not of God. It can't be of God because if it was, I would have seen it coming, right? If, if it was of God, he would have told me about it. And so they found it very threatening. And in fact, were alarmed at the prospect. You know, if this keeps going the way it's going, Pretty soon there's going to be more of them than there are of us. And then, then we won't be gathering in the temple anymore. And we won't be offering the sacrifices. And we won't be gathering for the three great uh, celebrations, the three great feasts of the Jewish faith. And, and then it's, it's not even Judaism at all. And that was very threatening to them. And so these men who came down from Jerusalem, don't you know they were motivated by a desire to impress the people back home who were alarmed. They wanted to be able to go back to Jerusalem and say, don't you worry, folks. You, you want to see how many Gentile men we got circumcised when we were down there in Galatia? We're, we're doing the Lord's work here. Yeah, put us on your posters. We are the champions of righteousness. And as he says, and that's what he means by saying they want to boast in your flesh. They could also avoid persecution. Paul, his entire ministry career, faced persecution, yeah, sometimes from pagans, but mostly from his fellow Jews. And these Judaizers, as some scholars call them, these legalists from Jerusalem, they were motivated by a thought, you know, I, I don't want to go, I don't want to go past my synagogue, the synagogue I used to attend all those years ago, and them come out and, you know, string me up. I want to be able to say, listen, I'm fighting the same battle you are. I'm, I'm talking to these Gentiles and telling them, follow the law of Moses. There, there's some projection going on. They know they're motivated by a desire to please others. So they just assume that Paul and people like him are as well. Verse 14. Verse 14 is a key verse. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, now, one of these days, you mark this down, one of these days you're going to hear a sermon from me on that verse, because as I was studying for this, I'm like, aha, I've got three points right out of that one verse. And you're going to hear them right now, but not the whole sermon. So point number one, do you boast in anything other than Christ? Paul was formerly a boastful man. Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law faultless, as to zeal persecuting the church. He had his resume. And we all are tempted to do that, some more than others, but we all are tempted to at least, if not outwardly boast, to take pride in certain aspects of our character, certain accomplishments we have. But now Paul has become the kind of man who the only boastful thing he ever wants to say is, 
man, I'm so sinful that Jesus had to die for me and I'm so loved that he wanted to die for me. That's what I boast in. That's what's remarkable about me. And when you get to the point where that's all you want to talk about, that, that's all you want to boast about, that's when you know you're headed in the right direction. Second thing in this verse, he talks about the world has been crucified to me. We need to get to the point where we see the world as a temporary thing. This world is passing away. It's not forever. And man, that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, isn't it? Because we can't see the next world, we can see this one. And so every decision we make, even, even the most devout Christians I know, have a hard time not making decisions that are all based on this world being permanent. They have a hard time saying, you know, if I believe there's a new world coming that's going to last forever, I'm going to make a different decision right now. And I, I've used this example many times, but I'll use it again. I had good friends, great Christian people, and uh, he retired and they bought an RV and they, say, they came to me and said, Pastor, we're sorry, we love you. We love the church. We're just not going to be around much because we figure, you know, he's only got a few more years before he's probably not going to be able to get out much. Um, so we're going to enjoy those years while we can. And they just, they traveled. You know, they took their golf clubs and their, their little car they towed and they went around the country and we'd hear from them in, you know, South Carolina and Maryland and Maine and Montana and all over the country. And we were happy for them, but they were two of the best Bible teachers we had. And I'm thinking, well, doggone it, I'm happy for you, but we could use you here. And, and th I hope this isn't my bitterness, but I was thinking, you know, the new earth is going to, you're going to have plenty of time to travel and no limit on what you can do and where you can go. Why not use these years while you've still got the ability to teach the word and, and minister? I'm not saying it's wrong to, to travel, but don't ever retire from serving the Lord, right? Amen. If you retire from serving the Lord, that's a, that's a decision that's based on, I think this world is all there is. So I better enjoy it while it's here. Amen. Whereas the other aspect is, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burn myself out. I don't mean it that way, but I'm, gonna, I'm going to use every bit of what I've got, what God has given me to serve him while I can. Because the one thing I can't do in heaven is reach lost people and help hurting people. So, uh, you know, do you see this world as passing away or do you treat it like it's everlasting? The third one, I, I promised I wasn't going to preach it, but here I am. Number three, do you live a crucified life? He says, the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Remember, Jesus' call, and I have never seen another pastor or evangelist that has followed Jesus' example in this. Jesus' call to the lost was, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It wasn't, pray the simple prayer, and you'll go to heaven when you die. It wasn't, come down front, and I'll tell you what to do. It wasn't, it wasn't hey, join me, and, and I'll show you how to live an abundant life, you know, a life, the, your best life now. It was... Follow me, and you'll probably die. Come on. Who, who wants to come? And, and we wonder why so few were following him uh, when he died. So you have to understand the crucified life is the life that lasts. It's the life that matters. It's the life that says, my life, as Paul said in, in 2.20 in this, in this book, uh, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Now Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So that's a key verse. 
verse 14. Memorize it, write it on your mirror, whatever the case may be. Ask your wife about that first. Uh, but yeah, make sure you know this first because it'll, it'll, it'll set you straight. So verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. He's not saying that external ceremonies are bad. He's not saying if you want to circumcise your children, it's, it's wrong. He's not saying that at all. If you as an adult want to get circumcised, God bless you. Uh, that, it's just that those things aren't the point. And you can extend that to any kind of external sign. Those aren't the point. The point is, am I being made new? Is, there, is my heart being transformed? Am I a new creation in Christ? Again, not to pick on another denomination, but I was, I was just heartbroken when I read the article a few weeks ago about uh, a priest in another city, and they found out after years and years, he'd been baptizing using the wrong words. He'd been saying, we baptize you instead of I baptize you. And so, okay, now thousands of baptisms are invalid. And I just thought to myself, my goodness, do, do they really think that God's going to keep people out of heaven over a technicality? Do you really think that God is that way? Because I know he's not. Oh yeah, Jesus died for your sins, but that priest said the wrong words. You're in big trouble, buddy. What kind of God do you believe in, right? Paul, Paul is saying, listen, none of that matters as much as has Christ made me a new person? Have I been born again? Am I being made new? All right, so verses 17 and 18. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. That's, yeah, Paul is getting serious there, isn't he? Second to last verse in the whole book. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. I want to point something out. In most of Paul's letters, there's a formula he follows. He ends his letters by saying, hey, tell brother so-and-so hello, and tell sister so-and-so that, you know, God bless you and I can't wait to see you again. There's none of that at the end of Galatians. There's none of this, you know, I, I can't wait to see y'all again. There's none of this, uh, y'all pray for me. He just, he says, hey, I am scarred by Jesus, so don't mess with me. Think about that. Don't take that to mean he doesn't love them, right? Because the very next verse, he says, grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit, brothers. But when he says... I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He's being literal. Remember, when he first met at least some of these people, he had just been nearly stoned to death. I'm pretty sure that would display itself physically. When, Paul, when these people first met Paul, he was disfigured. He was probably crippled. He was probably you know, walking around with broken bones. And years later, I'm just guessing but I'm imagining that if you get stoned nearly to death, it's going to change your appearance forever. And he wears that as a, as a badge of pride. Look, look what I suffered for the cause of Christ. So don't come to me and say that you know more about Jesus than I do. Don't come and say that because you stick to the law of Moses, you're more faithful than I am. Where are your scars? The legalists emphasized the external sign of circumcision. We have our own external signs. Not even just 
in a religious sense. Yes, we have church membership and we have baptism or confirmation or whatever uh, your tradition emphasized. We use those. Uh, we use things like church offices, like Bible teacher or deacon or so forth. We use all kinds of things. We also have uh, more secular signs of God's favor, like earthly success, prosperity. Those are signs, we think, that God approves of us. Paul said, you want to see a sign? It's these scars. It's what I've suffered for the cause of Christ. So that leaves me with this. We need to reevaluate the scars we have. Because all of us have them. Not all of them for the cause of Christ, but we all have things we've suffered. And we look back at those as, boy, I'm glad that's over with. But what if we went back and said, I'm going to look back at that time, even though it's painful, that time of grief, that time of loss, that time of failure, that time of pain, and I'm going to see what was God doing in my life through that? What has he done since then with that? I'm going to praise him for my scars. And therefore, I'm going to say, God is able to overcome the worst that the world can throw at us, the worst that I can do to myself. God is able to take it and make it glorious. Look at the scars of your life, because we all have them. How do they tell the story of God's faithfulness? And that's how the book of Galatians ends, with that idea. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with us. And that grace is strong enough to overcome our weakness. And that's why the book of Galatians is so very important and useful. All right, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray. Thank you for your grace that is everlasting and can overcome uh, the worst sin we can commit and the worst the world can throw at us. Lord, forgive us for giving in to the easier version of Christianity that is not true, that just says... It's about rules. It's about performance. I pray, Lord, that you would shape us and mold us into people who follow your spirit and who trust you even when your spirit leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, re revive our church, revive the church in this country. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.